My big story in sport is that I'm known now for all this study of altered states of consciousness in sport. It's happening all over the place, but the richness of these experiences and all, for me, were laid down really plain in my teens and, and in golf more than the other sports. Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is the esteemed Michael Murphy, co-founder of the Esalen Institute. What's sometimes less well-known about Michael is that he is a sports nut and an expert on mysticism within the realm of sport. In 1972, Murphy published his first book, Golf in the Kingdom, which went on to sell more than one million copies, becoming a cult classic among athletes with many celebrity fans, among them Phil Jackson, Bill Murray, and Tom Smothers. He is also the author of In the Zone, Transcendent Experiences in Sports, which in the words of historian Jeff Kripal, quote, makes the case that there is a kind of spiritual underground in the sports world and that the psychodynamics of athletics, extreme discipline, physical suffering, risk-taking, scripted trauma, bear some rather striking resemblances to the earlier cultural patterns of shamanism and mysticism, end quote. In the Zone, in fact, is a book of case studies that make the compelling argument that sports may constitute an arena made for shifting consciousness and spontaneously inducing mystical states. So let's dive deep with the golfing yogi himself, the shaman of San Francisco 49ers, Mr. Michael Murphy. I'm joined today by my colleague, John Karst. Uh, John, would you mind introducing yourself and letting us know what you, uh, what you do at the Esalen Institute? Hi, I'm John, and I'm currently the development associate here at the Esalen Institute and a big sports fan. Uh, as well as a big Michael Murphy fan, as am I. So, Michael, I wanted to start off by asking you, what was your introduction to sport and wh what role did sport play in your family? Well, to tell it really true, my um, sport life was often rolling big time by the time I was three years old, I would say. My father was a, a boxer, and he, well, he'd won a, the welterweight championship at Annapolis. He went one year to the Naval Academy, and then he got tired of that and went to Stanford, but then he boxed at Stanford professionally. I think my boxing really started with pillow fights, because uh, I, we loved pillow fights. We have kids who come over to the house, and oh my God, everyone's whacking everyone around, you know, three years old and fun. But by a four, he had these 16-ounce gloves, you know, if you've ever fought, it's a kind of a somewhere between a pillow fight and real boxing. And you never, it's kind of like you're not hitting people, you're kind of pushing them. So boxing was all the way through. And I quit, I think I quit full time when I was 15. I just didn't like my head to be uh, hit so much. After I, the first time my nose was broken, uh, my father uh, said, son, you need to have it broken two more times to be a real good-looking guy because your nose is a little too small. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so... And how about Dennis, uh, your, your younger brother? Well, Denny, uh, uh, it was two years younger. So in the early days, I had him right where I wanted him. I mean, he's, you know, I shove, push him around and everything. But uh, he got his revenge when he got uh, to puberty and shot past me. Uh, so he was bigger than me, and I could not see his hands anymore. And like they say of Muhammad Ali, if you can't see his hands, you're doomed. And he punched so fast, so I quit. But meanwhile, we were throwing a football around all the time, and a baseball, and actually shooting hoops. We had, 
in Salinas, where I grew up, um, there were places not in our driveway, but you could go next door and start shooting hoops like all across the world. And so I did become a very good shooter in basketball. And I did make uh, my high school varsity a third string, third string, um, but as a kind of shooting guard type. And then a lot of inter intramural uh, there. But when I, the biggest turn that uh, has had an effect on the story going forward is uh, my brother, again, got me into golf after uh, my freshman year in high school. He started when he was 11, still five foot four, and I was, uh, I started at 14, which is late, really, for golf. I got real good real fast. I, I got to a four handicap in two years, and I had the, the luck to play in the Northern California Junior Championship against Kenny Venturi, who later became a U.S. Open champion, one of the great players, and um, he beat me badly. Along the way, we, you know, we were so fortunate. We'd go over and play Pebble Beach, one of the, some people think the greatest golf course in the world. Jack Nicklaus said if he um, had, uh, he had a choice, he had one more golf round, he would play it at Pebble and on condition that he would be buried at St. Andrews. So it was a great line. Um, but anyway, I, um, I was a very religious kid, really the only churchgoer on my whole father's side of the family. I became an altar boy when I was 11 in the Episcopal Church. No one else went to church. My parents didn't. Uh, my brother didn't. My grandparents didn't. I did. And I got interested at 14 in Spinoza, um, the great Jewish philosopher, kind of mystic. I was having these experiences, and I was having a lot of them playing golf and in sport. And these experiences, which um, have appeared in Golf in the Kingdom and its sequel, The Kingdom of Shiva's Irons, and my book In the Zone, but I didn't have an intellectual framework. I, I came up with my own philosophy of what was going on. My big story in sport is that I'm known now for all this study of altered states of consciousness in sport. It's happening all over the place, but it has not yet been fully described in the sports world. I mean, there's a primitive language has emerged, like playing in the zone, going with the flow, etc. But the richness of these experiences and all, for me, were laid down really plain in my teens and, and in golf more than the other sports. Although I fell madly in love with um, football because my father started taking us to Stanford University football games during the 1940 season when they were co-national champions. They won every game. They beat Nebraska in the Rose Bowl. And, uh, they invented the T formation, which is used in now in the NFL. It was invented at Stanford by Clark Shaughnessy. Uh, and so I got to go up there during that season, and it, it made me a football nutcase from then on. My experiences that I was having were not only just in golf or other sports, but watching teams, starting with the 49ers, and then I had a cousin who really taught me baseball. He's still alive now, he's, he's 96 years old now, but he taught me how to pitch. And then he'd throw these high balls high in the air and catch them. And down here, well, I, you know, I got to at least 
play a little baseball down here playing catch. Because uh, when I was that age, uh, I did not enjoy coming down here because all the, the men and, and the, the kids would fish and hunt. I, I, did. I did not enjoy fishing or hunting. I preferred baseball and horseback riding and all that fun. But anyway, down here we'd throw these baseballs around and, um, and somehow he taught me really how to throw a curveball. And so I got, I was always, I could really throw a curve. I mean, just really break it across the thing and strike guys out. But I never played uh, baseball um, in high school because of golf season, it was the same time. But I did play on these uh, Babe Ruth League and uh, these types of uh, leagues back then. They were a little different then. So I did play baseball uh, in the summers. But meanwhile, the main story for me in my teens in sport, uh, in retrospect, as I look back, was what I was experiencing on golf courses. Uh, and I spent by far the most of time, uh, more time on golf than all the other sports combined after I learned at 14. So part of that involved getting to see Ben Hogan and Sam Snead and other guys playing in Monterey for the first for the Bing Crosby annual event and then various big events they would have over there. And I remember um, particularly sitting out in the gloaming, you know, in the late afternoon, watching Hogan practice and at uh, Pebble Beach. Now, uh, beside the second hole, there was a big field practice there, and he um, would hit these shots, and maybe 200 people watching, there were probably 20 golf pros watching him practice, because he was uh, in a class by himself as a shot maker. Uh, he could fade the ball, hook the ball high, low, so he'd have a caddy out there shagging balls, and he would, um, every now and then, he would put his hand up. That means this ball's gonna land right on his head. So, the, so immediately the caddy would look up to see if it's gonna hit him. Uh, but always it was in a small circle around the caddy. But if he was gonna beat him, he'd raise his hands up. Utter silence, utter silence. All you could hear was the breaking surf out there at Pebble Beach, the rolling surf. Afterwards, no one would speak. They would get up. It had a huge, magical stillness. Part of it, the beauty of the, the course and the miracle of watching Ben Hogan hit these shots. So it sounds to me, I mean, I'm familiar with the concept of, of In the Zone, the, the book they've written that one can achieve mystical states by participating in sport, but it seems to me what you're saying is that one can achieve a, a mystical uh, state or experience by watching sport as well. Both. Both. Now, there's the lower side of the mystical. Let's call it the occult, which comes in on rooting for teams. Uh -huh. Now, we, we, we should have a little section on that, because I've had <laughs> some really interesting experiences on that front. <laughs> because, you know, particularly football today, it becomes Mardi Gras out there during those big games. People appear in costumes. They become totem animals. Now these costumes are getting more and more and they're out there and doing these whammies and all this stuff. And I wrote about this in Golf in the Kingdom. I have a, se a section. And John Updike, who really was a great reviewer, he wrote a long review in The New Yorker when it was published and he sent me a postcard once and I had complimented him for one of his short stories on golf and I get this postcard back. Um, um, he says, well, Michael, he said, um, Thank you for this, your wonderful compliments. Uh, as for you, uh, when it comes to writing, uh, 
It's as if a guy went to a baseball game and inexplicably was invited to step up to the plate and the first pitch you saw, you hit it out of the park. He said, or, to put it another way, you wrote the best book about golf in the 20th century. And, and it has sold more copies than any other book about golf, isn't that right? Well, well uh, as a fiction. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, my publisher said it was probably the best-selling fiction ever written. It's still it's 46, 47 years. Uh, my agent was also the agent for Ken Kesey and for uh, Jack Kerouac. He said, Mike, neither of those guys wrote a book that uh, produced um, a royalty payment twice a year for 46 years. <laughs> All their books petered out at some point, and then they may be revived. Well, that was another one of these great compliments. I mean, this book, um, Norman Mailer um, said famously um, that God gives every aspiring writer who per perseveres one for free. So mine for free was my first one. It was actually not edited. And uh, I had never tried to write. It just came out because my brother was a writer. And, and yeah. Would you speak for a moment just on um, Dennis's book, The Sergeant, for people? Well, The Sergeant uh, was his first book. He wrote it when he was 23. It was published when he was 25. John Steinbeck, of course, was close to, to the family. My grandfather delivered John Steinbeck. And he um, got uh, Dennis to... Uh, his agent, his editor, and his publisher. But in any case, Publishing 25, uh, you know, number it was, uh, you know, on the bestseller list at the New York Times and everything. It was a big hit. Later there was a movie. He, he actually worked on the screenplay, a movie with Rod Steiger of The Sergeant. And it's been anthologized. It, it, was, it was on the cutting edge of, uh, where the protagonist is gay, but suppressed. Uh, he... Um, he was a better golfer than me and a better boxer and uh, I would have to say a better writer. I mean, he was he could really write. So I uh, never thought of myself as becoming a writer. Then Esalen began and um, then I wrote this book and it just fell out of my head and there it sits. So for those who don't know about Golf in the Kingdom, would you offer maybe a short synopsis at least of part of what goes on? Yeah, good. Well, it's the story of a a person named Michael Murphy, who uh, is headed to India for enlightenment. But just as St. Augustine, as he was turning to God, said, let me have a few more less sins, carnal sins, sleeping with the ladies, uh, and then I'll go all the way to God. So I said, I'll give myself one last round of golf, said Murphy. So he goes uh, to play at a famous golf course that um, the name had to be hidden. And uh, the author me, says that um, perhaps you have played it yourself, but the name has been changed to the links of Burning Bush. And I was thrown in, Murphy was thrown in, with a, um, a shaman wizard, Shivas Irons, who uh, opened curtain after curtain on the mysteries to him during a 24-hour stay, a round of golf, then dinner at night with the friends, and then out to the ravine at night to look for this mysterious teacher. And 24 hours later, the poor, uh, poor Murphy was determined to go to India, and he left. And what he was looking for had happened on this golf course. Right? And I meant it as a parable of all of us. We walk right past the offerings of life itself, which is offering, call it enlightenment, 
call it opening to the divine, call it a major satori, whatever you want to call it. The book was published in, in, in 72, and immediately there was feedback uh, and people telling me these experiences that I had not had and I'd never heard of on golf courses. Um, I've, now, I've, I've described these at length in other books and in the zone with uh, Rhea White, who was a humanistic psychologist, librarian, had wanted to be a golf pro as herself, started collecting. And she collected 30,000 examples taken from articles and autobiographies of peak moments. Okay, so that book describes this, but very briefly, I remember a guy, uh, one of the first letters I got, he claimed to be a, an attorney living in New York. When I read your book, I thought, whoa, other people are having experiences like I had one day uh, standing on the tee of a four-par hole 400 yards away with my buddies, and I was in an altered state, and suddenly my mind became like a telescope, and I could see a ball marker the size of a dime on the green. And I said this to my buddies, Two of them could not see the green, and the other one could see the green, and it was, we got there and there was a ball marker. Another guy writes, this is that summer, I'll never forget this, Jim Benepe, he, his, actually his son became a winner on the, um, on the PGA Tour, but <clears throat> he uh, said, I just read your book and I, I think I understand true gravity, because um, true gravity, the protagonist, uh, Shiva's Irons, is trying to teach, show it to Murphy. So it's never clearly defined, but Murphy starts to understand it. But he said, uh, I was playing, uh, inspired by your book, I, um, I shot the best score I ever did uh, on this course. Uh, I shot even par, but the, the 18th hole um, is a long uphill five par. And as I walked uphill, I had the distinct impression I was walking downhill. I hit the green in two, and uh, God, I don't, I forget, it was a birdie or an eagle. And um, is that true gravity, it says. So I was starting to get these letters immediately. And then met John Brody, the quarterback of the 49ers who had read the book. How'd, had you, joined, how'd, how'd you meet John Brody? Well, uh, it was set up by a well-known psychologist, widely published, Bob Ornstein. And they sprung it on me. Uh, Dulcie was went with me. We drove down. Ornstein said, um, oh, there's a guy here, um, Mike, who um, would like to meet you, and maybe you could talk about a lesson or something. And anyway, Dulcie and I, because Ornstein was quite involved with us then, I thought, oh, God, so we're out on the highway. I thought, what the hell am I doing driving down to meet this friend of Ornstein's? So we get down there, and... Uh, Ornstein says, well, you go sit over here. I'm going to go get this guy. And I think Dulcie may have been watching or they were watching from behind a bush or something. Out comes this guy. And at first I couldn't believe it. I could say, John Brody, the quarterback of the 49ers. And I was a, a certified nutcase rooter for the 49ers. And I had t season ticket holder. And, I, and now they say, who were watching me that I got, got down on my knee and kissed his hand. I am absolutely convinced <laughs> I did not. I, I did not. But uh, uh, Dulcie, uh, you, uh, you did, did I get down on my knee and kiss his hand? <laughs> she's nodding. Well, she's, okay, uh, Dulcie's here. She says I did. I don't remember it. But um, I was shocked. 
And then I was even more shocked when he said, how would you like to come to training camp and work on a book with me? Well, it blew my mind. This is unbelievable. I mean, just because he'd read this book. Now, he, he had been uh, helped immensely by Scientology. And I had a huge uh, negative feeling about Scientology, and I still do. So we did go you, to the training camp. I'm sorry to break in. You knew about Scientology in the early 1970s? It be- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It had been going a while. I mean, it came out of Dianetics in the 50s, and then L. Ron Hubbard. And it was assuming huge cult-like presence. Did people ever try to make a connection between the Esalen Institute and Scientology? Not really, because we were getting um, a reputation as the anti-cult. And up at Berkeley, uh, you know, Margaret Singer, the great professor of cult behavior, I mean, a, a sociologist, and uh, her, one of her... Um, Protégés saw us, and because we were born, no one captures the flag. So a lot of refugees from these cults would come to Essen to try to escape the clutches of... Uh, this was a huge down here for a while, because you had so many of these cults springing up in the 70s, Rajneesh and well, Scientology and uh, uh, Jones, um, the Reverend Jones, 900 followers. He said, commit suicide, they committed suicide. I mean, it was a plague. Uh, that hit uh, our whole part of the culture. Yeah. Call it the human potential moment. Here, now these cults are coming up. But anyway, there's Brody. Can I interject with a, yeah. a, a quote from Jeff Kripal's book? Good. Uh, this, <clears throat> it's, it's right in w- with what you're saying. So here's from Jeff Kripal's book, Religion and... Religion the, of No Religion? The Religion of No Religion. Yeah. Excellent. <clears throat> when Murphy got to the 49ers camp, he was stunned to learn that the synchronicities and altered states that he'd written about in Golf in the Kingdom were the Sunday stuff of professional football players as well. As more and more fan mail poured in, moreover, it began to dawn on him that out-of-body experiences altered perceptions of space and time, extraordinary elevations of physical and psychical energy, even precognitive dreams and telekinetic-like phenomena appear throughout the amateur and professional sports world with remarkable consistency. Amen. That's well said. I mean, that, uh, that's, that's what happened. I was just going to say, talking about those moments in the 49ers, I, I just keep getting the flash of Joe Montana rolling out and hitting Dwight Clark for the catch and just how yes. Dwight Clark almost floated and, and it was just kind of yes. a throwaway play and just how that play almost epitomizes everything that you're talking about here. Well, it was I was, you know, I was in uh, the stadium right above the play. Uh-huh. I was very close to it physically, you know. I didn't know and, that. Yes, and... Um, so that's another story of how involved we got with the 49ers during those years because we got to know Bill Walsh and he really built the dynasty. And he really did change the game. He added, um, as the, the great GM of um, the, uh, the New York Giants uh, said, Bill Walsh made the game more beautiful. And those, it was a dynasty, 20-year dynasty, and they won five Super Bowls. And so Bill Walsh, after he quit being coach at... First year, he and his wife and Dulcie and I spent 10 days together in Russia. And if you want to get to know someone, go to Russia with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't know them pretty well, by the time you come back, something's wrong. And, um, you know, when you drink together and you, uh, anything, and that was 1989, I learned more than I ever could have dreamed about the inside working of a NFL team. And also through the years, I've, you know, gotten to know and be good friends with Pete Carroll, who was a 
the same person who introduced us to Bill Walsh introduced me to Pete. He, he was a, I grew up with him on, in Salinas, Glen Albaugh, and he and I were on the Salinas High golf team. He was a year, he, he was a year behind me and a year ahead of my brother. So, uh, so Glenn became a professor at University of Pacific uh, in sport psychology, pioneering guy, still alive. And he, uh, so with Pete, so I met Pete, what, uh, 40 years ago. He's 67 now, he, uh, more than 40 years ago. Oh. So, uh, and have kind of um, been in direct contact with him, team by team, the ups and downs. And that's another whole chapter of experience just given to me. Uh, and uh, it has taught me that if you open the doors to some to guidance in your life and follow your bliss, sometimes super magic happens. And that's it certainly happened with me. Sport opened a a door beyond even Esalen. I mean Esalen opens it's been doing it now for fifty eight years. Mm-hmm. And I started Esalen with with Dick Price. But golf just came in from the same intention to understand who we really are. Mm -hmm. Not only in our disabilities, but in our super abilities. And I, uh, I, I could argue with virtually anybody that every single human has these windows open, but their parents never understood it, even if their parents were religious. Their teachers didn't understand it. Their, their ministers, their priests, or their rabbis didn't understand it. You go to work, have a family, have these moments, and like poor Murphy on his way to India, walked past Shiva's irons, we walk past these possibilities all the time. Life is largely walking past the openings that are given to us. And uh, one of my big book, um, The Future of the Body, the first sentence is, we live only part of the life we're given. So in sport, it's, well, I came to see it. It started right with Brody. Now, this would be another conversation, another part of our conversation. How sport produces little circles of the esoteric. Jeff Kripo, the chairman of the board of Esalen now, uh, his field is religious studies, and he has... Uh, one of his specialties is esotericism. And at Rice University, where he teaches, this is a, a big something, academically. Esotericism. Why does it exist? Because mainstream culture will try to squelch this stuff. And even the big religions themselves, in the name of God, in the name of God, squelch the openings to God that happen to a lot of people. I would say Esalen is largely for people who are I don't want to miss Shiva Sirens the next time he appears. <laughs> and so they want to become alert. Uh, it's perhaps not framed that way, you know, in a particular program, but it's to open up to, to, to the more in our lives that is given. So here is sport, which everyone loves, and most of this stuff is hiding in plain sight. So, okay, the players know it. Many of them have a special opening. So they don't want to look foolish, so they don't talk about it. So the someday somebody's going to do the master work on what we didn't talk about. I want to, I want to quote Jeff again. This is uh, about your book, In the Zone. Murphy and Rhea White 
we're not quite arguing that athletes are mystics, much less saints or shamans. They were arguing, however, that sport is an arena with a particular genius for shifting consciousness and energy and spontaneously inducing states that are well known in the history of religion. Yes. Perfect. Beautifully said. Um, Jeff's a great writer. Uh, It's going on all the time. Some characters become very interesting to me, uh, naturally. Once you see this, let's take uh, Bill Belichick. Uh, some people think he's actually maybe not human. I mean, it, he could be a cyborg. Has, no one's ever seen him smile. He just looks at... And, and he... You can't picture him doing a belly laugh. Uh-huh. And uh, what's going on in there? And he... There he is with uh, 10 division titles in a row. He's everyone says he's a great coach, but not a beep ever about anything that related to the mystical. Now maybe he, there is none. Maybe he is a cyborg of some type. And, um, and you know I'm joking, but um, on the other hand, uh, you have Pete Carroll, uh-huh. Seahawks, and he's been very out front about these interests, but cool. And so there have been players with him who in secret, laugh at and mock the reporters because they know they're all muggles in the Harry Potter thing. They simply can't see these things. Mm-hmm. And yet they're watching all the times. You know, Carlos Castaneda, you know, say the difference between um, looking and seeing is a big difference. You can look for these things, but when you see them, it's incredible. So um, sport is in many ways an engine of transcendence. It's, it's, a, it's a yoga, it's a Western yoga, but, the, but they have never, uh, there's, it hasn't caught on yet a, a framing, a story, a model, a philosophy, a worldview mm-hmm. that reveals it and connects the dots. So people in sport, athletes in sport who do it are like the rest of us, sleepwalkers, sleepwalking toward the divine, as it were but in the name of the sport itself. And one of the geniuses of sport, you're not in there to be holy or to be enlightened. You're there to play, or in the case of pros, win. But it becomes an exercise that forces you to do the things that contemplatives, yogis, shamans do. Concentrate, okay? Visualize things. The power of visualization in itself doesn't matter what you're visualizing. You could be having erotic fantasies, but that power is exercising the mind stuff. Let's call it the key, the chi, the prana, which mainstream science has yet to identify because it's extrasensory. So you can't see it with a microscope. You have to open your third eye. You have to open these sensibilities. So, okay, these guys are visualizing and concentrating, and suddenly they pop into what we would call the occult world. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things, surprisingly, how many people on golf courses either see phantom figures or the wee people or other weird things. And I've come to believe that when you are really focused for a while, you produce a kind of sensory deprivation because uh, you're really focused and now in, if you're in a sensory deprivation chamber, you know, where all your senses are shut up uh, and uh, shut off, and suddenly you are there naked with your, uh, with your inner eye 
if you float in these dark, you can't hear or see anything. So golf becomes a form of limited sensory deprivation. But even something as wild as a football game, it becomes like that. So, okay, so you start to open. Then these supernormal things blossom, like this guy playing golf. He saw the ball marker 400 yards away. So you become hyper, hyperacuity. That's um, a lot of shooters have this, where suddenly I've had it, where suddenly you go from 2020 to 2010 eyesight. Okay, what's happening? And then it morphs into clairvoyance. So now you pop out beyond the sensory world, but you can see things far away. So, um, you know, I describe some of these in The Future of the Body, my big book. Normal eyesight with training becomes a hyperacuity. You get real good at this, and then it pops into clairvoyance. Or in an intermediate zone, you start to see auras. So David Megacy, you know, who wrote the famous book Out of Their League and started coming to Esla in 1969, he's a... He's a, a good friend. Told me stories as early as 1969, came, coming out of a game. He, he was seven years a linebacker for the St. Louis Cardinals. Okay, maybe he did have a small concussion. In those <laughs> days, you went back out there and played with your small concussion. But he looked and people had auras. He'd never heard of this or seen it. I think he may have had an LSD trip or something. <laughs> but he just sat there enjoying watching these auras and he came out here and we met in 69 and we've known each other ever since i mean this is you know almost half a century so this, these sorts of things start to happen where the game the sport itself becomes a yoga becomes a contemplative or shamanic practice yeah. the, the 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 focus uh the concentration the visualizations then the principle of sacrifice you have to give something up to get something, you know, you have to pay for it. The training, uh, the sweat, blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, and you train up, it's a deep joy, but it's ascetic. People don't realize how ascetic these great athletes are, but they're training. Mm -hmm. They practice, they train all the time. If you're, if you're gonna have a career in the pros, certainly. In the old days, you know, you could take six months off and get fat, and then you get skinny again, and, like that, and it doesn't work anymore. You've got to stay fit all year round, and you've got to train, etc. So sacrifice, what's the root of that word? Sacrificio, mm -hmm. to make sacred. Sacrifice, and the, even the person who alerted me to that one was Bill Walsh, because mm -hmm. you know, we were talking, I said, what makes it a yoga? And he said, the first thing is sacrifice. And look at the language they use. You have to give yourself up, uh, you have to, um, in football it's tough, but they're trying to mitigate these injuries with better helmets and with better rules and et cetera. But now in golf, what do you give up? These guys don't look like, most of these pros um, don't look like yogis to, to most of us, you know, but they're getting to be more and more fit, uh, driven largely by Tiger Woods. He was working out all the time. It changed the PGA. It, it changed professional golf all over the world. He was a transformational figure, Tiger Woods. Why isn't he given credit? Because the sport world is so square. They're so conservative. You know, I call golf, you know, a mystery school for Republicans. I mean, it's uh, all these mysteries are occurring to these very straight guys. I once lectured in the Superdome and, you know, where they're going to play today yeah. to a thousand golf pros. They're all taking notes. 
and Andy Nussbaum, who later had a little gig here running this place, um, he um, introduced me. Because I think they thought I was going to speak in Gaelic or something. Because mm -hmm. here's Murphy, Golf in the Kingdom. Everyone knew about Golf in the Kingdom. So, so here they are taking us, a thousand of these golf pros. And uh, then they asked the PGA. We, we did some training, but I realized the more I was brought toward, let's say, the center of things, the more the resistance grew. See, on the margins, those who had the eyes to see and enter did. But you get into the ruling bastions, it's the same as with these religions. Like, you know, the saints were always had to be corralled in the Catholic Church. I mean, they're too dangerous. So you sequester them. You, you put them over there, like St. Francis, because it, they're disturbing. They're disturbing things, you know. They, they're disruptors. Uh, well, the same in sport. So there's been this dance between the drive towards transcendence in human nature in the world of sport, between that drive and the powers that be to regulate sport. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of uh, what um, John Cleese of Monty Python fame says about religions. It's 1% alignment with God and 99% crowd control. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's how to behave and, um, you know, um, don't commit adultery. We have not been able to come to grips with our emerging divinity. That's why we started Esalen. To dramatize this event of what's going on all around us, trying to become as gods. I mean, that's, uh, that's how <clears throat> the, all the early celebrity types who led programs here, like Abraham Maslow, Aldous Huxley, were trying to say. We don't have a story of what's going on adequate to who we really are. Now, here is sport, which everybody loves, demonstrating this. And the sports writers, the Mongols, don't write it down. Why? Because they can't see it. And if they do get a glimmer, if they do get a glimmer, they don't want their editors thinking they're a little nutty now. Well, I think uh, all of us can see it in like certain plays, even in the past, you know, like a few years ago with LeBron blocking Andre Iguodala. Here's this guy, like you were saying, been training and all these things. And he's like at the tip top of his shape. And there was like one moment where you could see where it was almost superhuman that he tracked him down and made that block. And there's just like these defining plays. You know, sometimes Michael Jordan would look like he would flow and like somehow right. would like flip things in or the Dwight Clark catcher. And then right. sometimes even like prolonged periods, you have it right now with like James Harden in the NBA where he's scoring 50 points every yeah. night. And it's just like there's this talk of these like guys when they like cross this threshold or Steph Curry a couple years ago where he was just shooting from all over the court. And it's just like everything that you're speaking of. And it's just right out there in front of us mm -hmm. on SportsCenter every night. Right. The Warriors right now yeah. are the biggest light show of supernormal action. You know, Clay Thompson this way. Uh, if I'm depressed, I have a, this clip of um, of Clay going 37 points in a quarter. Uh -huh. I defy anybody who's depressed to look at that and stay depressed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, it's just boggling. Have you guys seen that? Yeah. It's unbelievable. Uh -huh. And he, it was unbelievable to him. Yeah. He's a super streak shooter, that guy. Yeah. And, um, and the Warriors now got, they got three of them going right now. They're adding another one. Well, you know, with, um, with Clay and Steph and, um, uh, and Durant. Yeah. 
who is a cool magician. He's actually more consistent than Steph or Clay. I mean, he never, I mean, it looks like he can score a basket anytime he wants. Yeah. The only reason he doesn't, he's assisting. He's th- but if it was just, if there was a team base just on Kevin Durant, I wonder how many points he would make if he could, like Will Chamberlain was. Uh-huh. See, Will was, never won championships, but he scored 100 points in one game. He, I mean, he, uh, but anyway, say Kevin Durant. But see, sometimes life lets the muggles see things. So the Warriors, it's kind of muggle time. Everybody can see this, and they get boggled. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Certain, Babe Ruth was like this. Mm-hmm. Some people think he was the most transformational figure in the history of sport, but because, you know, well, you know, I, I have a lot of Babe Ruth stories, but um, he certainly, with his feats, the, the worst decision in the history of sport <clears throat> was the Red Sox selling him to the Yankees. Yeah. And they had won half the first um, uh, World Series, you know, the the, uh, the Red, oh, Red Sox had won five of the first 15 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And after that, they went 80 years without a one. Meanwhile, the Yankees had won none. And then they, now they've won 27 World Series. And it started with the babe. He came up. How, how did life give rise to somebody who was better than a team? He had more home runs than any team did. Yeah. And people realize he was a top pitcher, but then he was just a hitter later. Mm-hmm. But in any case, there are these figures, Michael Jordan, I mean, they, and Tiger Woods. And isn't, Tiger. It, isn't it true that Phil Jackson gave your book, Golf in the Kingdom, to Michael Jordan? Yes, he... Uh, He's right. a golfer himself. Right. I, I blurbed a couple of Phil Jackson's books, but Phil gave, and there was an article in the Chicago Tribune, he had given him Golf in the Kingdom, there was this article, and then he gave him The Future of the Body you know, 750 pages. And so this writer was saying, there's Jordan with this book, The Future of the Body. God knows if he ever, you know, read it. Bill Bradley, uh, who um, told me, you know, the Senator Bradley uh, has been here, um, said that both he and Phil Jackson on the Knicks, both had Golf in the Kingdom was their favorite book. And they were in their 20s, you know. And um, Phil, I don't think, was a starter on those great Knicks teams. He was second. Dave DeBusher, you remember, and Walt Frazier, and later Earl of Pearl, and who was the big center there on their team? Um, anyway, you guys probably know, but anyway. Um, so he, there's Golf in the Kingdom right there in the garden. And then Phil has won, what, 11, 11 or 13 world's, uh, NBA titles, um, six with the Bulls. Five, five with the Lakers. Yeah. Five with the Lakers. Eleven. Yeah, eleven. Yeah. So he's he won eleven. He's totally into this stuff. So I'm just curious, you know, like obviously you're an intellectual. You've written eight books. I just wonder if people hearing this who might be surprised, like, "Whoa, Michael Murphy is really a sports nut." What would you, what would you say to them? Well, I'd say come have, come play with me. No, come let's let's go to a forty nine again. If you want to know some. No, amen. Join the fun. God, really. For me, it's, um, wow. I can pursue these fundamental interests of my life and it's happening in sport. What a break. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Frenzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. 
If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, eslin.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Eslin Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you so much for your contributions to our world.